want to, uh, to uh, uh, welcome Dan Kinneman this morning. You know, um, Dan is kind of standing in for Bill, in a way. He's not Bill. Don't call him Bill. But Bill, I think, would be so happy to be here. And this is Dan's first time here this morning. It's Dan's first time here in the building, first time able to speak uh, here in the church. And, you know, Bill was always looking. I'm sorry, I get emotional because Bill's like the guy. He's the, he's the guy. But Bill was looking with us. He was on the team searching for that right place. And, and little did he know it was like right around the corner from, from where his house was. Incredible, isn't it? To think. But... But uh, for Dan to be here, I wanted um, Dan to be here on our very first Sunday here. Remember that? But he couldn't be here. I wanted him to be here on behalf of Bill. But Barbara took that spot, and she, she did a good job, too, I have to say. Right? Mm-hmm. But Dan is here, um, kind of coming, things coming around full circle, I think, and uh, uh, this new future, this plan that God has for us. He's going to continue, by the way, in our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's welcome Dan, shall we? I think so. Thank you, Rich. It is uh, really good to be here with you um, in this building, we've been waiting anxiously to see it. We heard about all the work that's been going on, and uh, so it looks great. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, how it got this nice in such a short time, but, um, and far be it for me to stir things up at all, but, uh, you know, I understand there's going to be a controversy here about the pews. Some people want chairs, and some people want pews. I'm kind of a pew guy, um, so, you know, it's, it looks nice. It looks like a real church. And uh, Rich, speaking of my dad, um, just I'll share with you, you know, it's uh, um, when he was sick, he had me come to some of the churches that he was speaking in regularly around here and um, had me uh, speak with him a couple of times and then speak for him a couple of times. And uh, so I made a, a little folder on my computer um, for preparing messages and I labeled it following dad. Um, and uh, we all have a whole bunch of people. One of the incredible things about our faith walk is that not only do we have a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to minister to us and to show us and to guide us, but we also have examples of faith down through the ages, and not just Abraham and Moses and Noah and so on that you can read about in Hebrews 11, but we have people that we've, learned under, people who have been in our lives, people God has put in our lives as our faith examples. And so then it, then it becomes our turn, right? And then we're going to hand the baton off to the people coming up behind us, and that's just the way it works. And so uh, it's really good to be here with you and to see the new building, and I thought it's got to be hard. Some of you almost by, by reflex probably packed the stuff up afterwards, um, and maybe you've been broken of that habit by now, but that's got to be a wonderful Release and, and I want you to know, as, as someone who was only able to come here once in a while and, and be a casual observer, I'd come up once in a while and say, is there anything I can help with? And they'd say, no, get out of the way. Um, we have a routine here. Um, and, and yet I was very impressed. I know that that's not simple, and it takes a lot of hours and manpower to get it done. So uh, congratulations on the new building. Now, you've, you've heard the one about the uh, young man who was on his way down to the lake to go fishing. And as he went out on the pier and to pick his spot, he didn't see the little uh, rise in the, in the end of the pier, and he tripped and fell in the water. And it took him a little time, but he got himself in his fishing pole, got up out of the water, and there he is sitting on the pier soaking wet. And a constable came walking by and said, Hey, young man, how'd you come to fall in the water? He said, I didn't come to fall in the water. I came to fish. <laughs> it's a little Rich Chapman humor. I could call it Bill Kinnaman humor, but there, there you go. Rich said he was his example. But, but I came today to encourage you in the Word of God, to encourage you with the Word of God. But I want to warn you that for some of you, and as for me in my preparation, 
that encouragement may come by way of conviction. See, to be convicted by the Word of God can be unnerving and alarming and disconcerting and challenging and encouraging all at the same time. I count it a blessing to be convicted by the Word of God. Now, I'm speaking to Christians, those who profess to be followers of Jesus. There are some here, yes? Are you a follower of Jesus? Profess to be? One of the ministries that God has allowed us to be part of is a ministry called Baseball Chapel. Now, today, this morning, throughout the world of professional baseball, there are about 500 different teams around the world, major league and minor league included, and every one of them has a baseball chapel leader. There's an organization called Baseball Chapel. You can go to baseballchapel.org. You can see testimonies of some of the players that you know, and you can see some of the materials and devotionals that go out throughout the world of baseball. Um, It's like going into a secular environment and saying, hey, we're going to have chapel now. And you'd expect only a, a few people to show up. And in many cases, just a few guys show up. It doesn't, we don't have a nice place like this to do chapel. We do chapel usually for the visiting team in the dugout. And we do chapel for the home team. They have a weight room in the clubhouse. The visitors don't have one. But the home team gets a weight room in the clubhouse. So we do chapel for them in the weight room. But we just say, you know, hey, chapel time and guys show up. So any given Sunday morning in professional baseball, There are about 300 different chapels taking place with about 3,000 baseball players in attendance total. Um, It's much better than when I was young and playing where you had to decide, do I play on Sunday or do I go to church on Sunday? Uh, Now we bring church to the ballpark and work around their schedule. And and the the team that I work with is a double A team. My wife and I work uh, with, uh, do that together uh, because we minister to the families, the wives, the girlfriends. But the team that we work with, we're having a a really exciting year. Of the 25 guys or so that are on the roster, uh, last week in chapel, 20 20 players and two coaches came. Um, So keep them in your prayers. I don't know where they are all spiritually. We uh, started a midweek Bible study this past Wednesday, and we had uh, 13 players and one coach show up. Um, And I gave them a whole list of topics to to study. I said, what do you want to study? And I put on there partying and money and all the kinds of things I thought they'd be interested in, some spiritual terms too. And the one they chose was faith. And uh, I asked them, why did you choose faith? And, and one of the guys said, because in our lives as professional baseball players, there are a lot of challenges to compromise. He said, we want to know how to be more faithful to God. So we appreciate your prayers for that ministry. Um, and and I, I bring that up because... You know, if I said to them, you know, virtually every hand went up here when I said, do you profess to be a follower of Christ? That may not be the case there, right? There's a lot of, of curious people that come. When that many people come, 20 out of 25 come, they're, they're not all people who have made a, a personal profession of faith at this point in their lives. But to those of you who have, you'll understand when I say that it can be hard, can't it? to come to grips with the reality of just how far short we fall from his calling. I can confess that. I fall way short of my Lord's calling. Yet at the same time, is it not inspirational and encouraging to know the fullness of his call and his confidence in us that we can accomplish his purposes as we trust him and as we learn to live in that trust, right? It's a, faith is a marathon. The faith walk is a journey that takes a lifetime. And we learn to live in our growing trust in Jesus. Now, this Sermon on the Mount, this passage that has come to be known as the Sermon on the, on the Mount, this collection of teachings of Jesus, is extremely challenging. It's the high call to pure Christian living. It's radical teaching about radical living. Radical living that is unattainable through our own efforts and desires. If you read this, you can't do that on your own. You can say, oh yeah, that sounds nice. I'd like somebody to be that way to me. But that's hard. In fact, I would put forth here today that it's unattainable in its fullest sense on this side of heaven. 
But nevertheless, it's the cross. See, when I say that, I'm thinking of verse 48 in chapter 5. Look at that with me in your Bible. It's just a short verse. Jesus finishes a series of teachings, and then he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, that's the call. That's the goal. That's the objective. I love to be simultaneously convicted about how far short I fall of that and inspired at the same time by the incredible words that are written here. It takes discipline to be in the Word of God. Now, I try... I make an attempt at being a runner, not so that I can run in races or win races, but because I know the benefits that it has to exercise. And I'll tell you, it's, it's hard. I say, I'm going to go out and run seven miles. I don't feel like it. It takes discipline. Um, but I do it because I know that it has value. And the Bible talks about that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, Physical training is of some value. But godly training is of great value. In fact, what he writes is, Godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. That's our call, godly training. Jesus, in this sermon, in this collection of teachings, calling us to godly training, the discipline of godly training. And so I understand Rich has gone through chapter 5 verse 12, so we'll pick it up here in chapter 5 verse 13. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Just a few short verses shouldn't take us more than a few hours. <laughs> Don't worry, though. My daughter has to be at Connecticut College at 3 o'clock. So we've got to be out of here by 2. They think I'm joking. I am. As a, as a preliminary to laying out the specific characteristics of Christian living, Jesus, in these few short verses, reminds those of us who are claiming to be his followers of our identity, who we are, and what we are. And it's vital to know this in order to pursue the rest of it. He calls us salt, he calls us light. We'll start with salt. That's what he started with. Seven short words. You are the salt of the earth. Now in saying that, I want to extend the metaphor just a little bit and include the modern day container that we use to hold and dispense salt. The salt shaker. So in a sense, you're in this new building and in a sense, this is your salt shaker. You're all the salt. And here's your salt shaker. In a larger sense, Calvary Chapel is your salt shaker. What I mean by that is Calvary Chapel in the sense of the ministries and the fellowship, the activities of Calvary Chapel <clears throat> is your salt shaker. Now you have two salty challenges. One is you got to get out of the salt shaker. That's one of the commands. So salt is a flavoring agent. That's its fundamental purpose. I had a piece of, an ear of corn on a cob yesterday. Man, was that good. It, it, it wasn't good, though, till I put the salt on it. A little butter, a little salt and pepper, but the salt, that's the magic. Brings out the flavor. Salt is a flavoring agent. It must be dispensed to do its job of flavoring. Now, I'll take a little side note here. doesn't technically fit the metaphor, but there's a danger to getting too comfortable here in the salt shaker. There's the danger that church becomes club. 
And we have to resist that temptation. It's a natural temptation because we start to feel comfortable with each other. And you can tell when church is becoming club. It's when virtually all of the ministry efforts and virtually all of the fellowship opportunities are targeted at us. Targeted at ourselves. Church as club makes it hard for outsiders to join because they're not pursued. And they're often ignored if they show up, especially if they don't fit in. It's more comfortable to just let them go away. Now, I don't think you're guilty of that here. I've been at some churches that are. They've been doing it for so long, they just want to keep doing it the way they're doing it. And that's not what the salt shaker is supposed to be about. We're supposed to flavor the world around us, and we'll come back to how we do that in a moment. But first, if you look at this verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 13, Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, but then look what he says. His focus is on bad salt. So he says you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's a rhetorical question. It can't be. It's no good. It's worthless. Well, we profess to be his followers. We're the salt. He says, watch out. See, this is the conviction teaching. It's a hard teaching. So he's saying, you got to stay salty. you got to get out of the salt shaker, but you got to stay salty. That's a challenge. It's a strong teaching. The lordship of Christ in my life cannot just be a private matter. It can't just be something between God and me. Do you have a secular job? I have a secular job. What do people know about you? What do people know about your faith? What does the guy in the next cube know? It's an interesting question. So my, the lordship of Christ in my life should permeate every aspect of my life. Will someone come before God someday and say, I never knew that guy was a Christian? It's a tough one. If the salt loses its saltiness, it's no good for anything in terms of God's purposes. The Lordship of Christ should permeate and affect every aspect of how we live. I have many confessions about my own life where it hasn't. Times of stark conviction. I've shared this one with you, I think, before. I'll just do it very briefly again because it was a turning point in my life as a Christian. I was a Christian. I wasn't doing a very good job of making it known. I was comfortable that way. I was in college and one night sitting around with a bunch of guys that we all played soccer together and we had practice late at night and afterwards we'd sit around and I wasn't a drinker. Um, but, you know, it was all the kind of scene that you would think you'd find in a college dormitory, drinking and talking and watching TV, and one night God became the topic for some uh, unknown reason, and they were saying some really crude things. And I said, hey, you guys, first time I'd spoken up about something like this, I said, hey, you guys, you, you got to not talk like that. One guy said, why? I said, because people believe in God. I said, in fact, I'm, I'm one of them. I believe in God. The guy looked me right in the eye, this guy Art, and he said, that's a crock. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, if that were true, you'd be different from us. He said, but you're just like us. And I left the room. I walked out. I sat down on the stairs, and I said, you know, he's right. If that's true, I, I, should, I should have something about my life that makes them stand up and take notice. Something. I walked out. I went out and was at the University of Connecticut. I walked around campus. It was about 2 in the morning at the time. I think I came back about 4.30 just trying to figure it out. I said, I got to, I said, God, if you're real, and I believe you are because I'm a Christian, I profess to be one of your followers, I, I got I to really know that I believe it or I got to write it off as a farce. God has no grandchildren. It's, it's either my faith or no faith. It's not my parents' faith. That's not what saves me. It's my faith. And I decided, among other things, I said, I'll give you one week, God. I didn't really say that. I said, please show me that you're real. Less than a week, I felt like God really showed me in his own way. And then I said, you know what? Before I write this office of farce, I've read the scriptures. Before. I'm going to really sit down and read the scriptures. 
And I read through my sophomore year in college the Bible cover to cover. And it did everything that we're talking about this morning, conviction, encouragement, comfort. It made me know beyond a shadow of a doubt how I should live. Now, I have many confessions about how I failed since then. Some of them even have to do with sports. Same thing. You know, years later, after being a preacher and a teacher and a, uh, leading Bible studies and everything else, I was, had a, a soccer team, an indoor team we ran. We were playing in an arena one night, and um, a friend of mine from a long time ago that I had met when he had just gotten saved, he came out to me and he said, hey, just wanted to let you know that if, uh, if I didn't know you were a Christian, I wouldn't know you were a Christian by the way you play. Now, he wasn't talking about whether you play hard or not play hard. He was talking about other things, you know, it's a, um, pushing and talking and other kinds of conduct. And it stopped me. It convicted me. I went and took a shower and I came out and mo- most of my teammates were there watching another game. And I went around and I started apologizing to him. I remember this one guy, he looked at me and goes, what are you talking about? I said, well, I'm a Christian. I have to apologize to you for my conduct. I didn't live the way that I should live, didn't act the way that I should act on the field tonight. And that guy later became a Christian. And that was a little bit of an influence on him because he was stymied. You know, he thought I was uh, kind of silly. But it, it meant something to him. He wanted to check it out further. Now, not every criticism is correct either. We get criticized sometimes unfairly. But I think sometimes when someone says something like that to me, it makes me want to stand up and take notice and ask the Lord, is there something I should change? And I'll leave it to you. That's something that God will show you or um, convict you of if, if it's something. And you probably have points in your life that are like that. But thanks be to God, he never gives up. He always says, come on, come on. That's why I know it's not completely attainable in this life. But he says, come on, get back on track. Say, be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Now, there's a man named Dan Merchant. You may have heard of him. He put a documentary together about a year ago, and it's called, Lord, Protect Me From Your Followers. Now, he's a Christian, this guy, Dan Merchant. Um, he was confronted himself by the extent to which he, his life failed to reflect or demonstrate his faith. He had what you can call an uh-oh moment. And he was in a third world country, and he met a man who had nothing. Yet this man, he said, is so much more enthusiastic and genuine in his faith than he felt he was. He said, even though my worldly possessions were many, many times greater than his, this guy talked about Jesus as though he really believed it. That this was everything in his life. And he said, it made me stop in my tracks and think, wow, do I really believe what it says? Do I really believe God knows the number of hairs on my head? Do I live like I believe it? I have to think of another question for the two guys in the front row here. But uh, (laughs) I tried to resist. Lord, forgive me. Um, But in his documentary, he asked, he did a man on the street interview, getting at what impression as Christ followers are we making on our world? I've seen only a few clips, haven't seen the whole documentary. But in this man on the street interview, and he interviews people you can just tell by the way they're dressed and the way they talk. They're from all walks of life. Many have never probably been inside a church. But he says to them, what's your impression of Christians? Responses included, they go to church. Now I ask you, is that salt or not salt? And that's a tough one, right? It could be... be Something that's positive, they could be saying it positively, they might not be, they, you know, they, those are the guys that go to church. Fanaticism, doesn't sound like salt, does it? Not good salt. What's your impression of Christians? One person said, killing non-Christians. Crusades, warfare, trying to get other people to be Christians, being really snobby. A lot of hypocrites. Hypocrites, that was mentioned many times. Now, I would stand here and say, in defense of Christians, Christians have done much 
that reflects the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people reflected that too in answers. There were other answers too. Some are kind of, you wonder what exactly they mean. They said being holy. Did they mean being holier than now or, or being holy? But some are not suspect to, to questioning like that. One was love thy neighbor kind of stuff. That's my impression of Christians. Well, good. Good for whoever made that impression. Compassion. Good. Forgiveness. Loving Jesus. See, if that's all we show, that's really good. If the impression people have of you is that person loves Jesus, it's a good thing. But what stood out to me in this documentary and in this clip that I saw was then he asked the same people, similar people, some were the same, what is Jesus known for? And he answers forgiveness numerous times. Forgiveness, forgiveness. Faith, hope, charity, love. Jesus saves, dying for mankind, saving the world, died on the cross for me, dying for man's sins multiple times. People said that. Giving his life for man's sins, many variations. Numerous times, healing the sick, loving the poor, miracles, miracles, numerous mentions. I thought, wow. But these same radicals, people who are not church people, not Christians, when you ask them what they think of Christians, you get a mix of answers, some really negative, not salty. When they ask about Jesus, it's all salt. Only a couple people trying to be wise guys, you know, they say things like, uh, sandals, you know, he wore sandals. Well, all the answers, all the truthful ones, the, the, the sincere ones, they were all about salt. See, if we really want to do our job as God's salt, if we really do our job as God's salt, what would the overwhelming impression of Christians be to the outside world? You can say it in a word. Be love. Right? They'd look at us and they say, those people, those green meadow people, they love God. You know what? They love other people. They just love people. They love each other. Look how they treat each other. Incredible. That's flavoring. We would flavor our world in a really in, in important way if that's what people thought of us. Scripture has lots to say about how we should be flavoring the world around us. We know these verses. I want to remind us of them. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we know, and we're going to come back to this, that we're not in this alone. God promises to be with us. If you've professed faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, what does the Bible say? It says that the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside you. It says you can quench the Spirit, you can stifle the Spirit, you can sadden the Spirit, but you can cooperate with the Spirit too. And so it says here, if you do, the fruit that will come out of your life, you know the words, let's rethink them. The fruit that will come out of your life, first one is love and joy. These will be our characteristics. Joy, not, not a bubbly all the time kind of person. That's not what it means. It's inner knowledge that we have a source of, of reason to be positive even in the most difficult circumstances. That we can believe that regardless of the circumstance, and there will be bad circumstances in your life, at some point. But regardless of the circumstances, Joyce says we actually truly do honestly believe that God can work for good. That God is not defeated by our circumstances. Peace. You heard about peacemakers in the last two weeks? We can be people of peace, promoting God's peace. Patience. I got to work on that one. So flavoring the world with patience. I want to have that bumper sticker, you know, get the heck out of my way, I'm late for church. <laughs> it's not what he's talking about. That's how we act sometimes, right? Come on, buddy, it's a yield sign, not a stop sign. That's the only place I'm impatient, it's in the car. Just ask my family. <laughs> kindness, kindness. 
It's not that hard. Do you know Starbucks has kind of a corporate mantra that they're supposed to be friendly, kind people? So in one little Starbucks I go to down in the Mystic Marriott, they used to always say, say um, you have a great day. So I'd start, before they did, I'd say, hey, you have a great, say, great day. And they say, you have a fantastic day. I said, well, you have like an ultimate titanium type of day. So we can't let a company that just wants to get more profit by being friendly out friendly us, right? Kindness. See, I know you're in a rush sometimes at the grocery store. How hard is it to say something kind? You know that person at the register? What kind of day is she having or he having? It doesn't take much to say, hey, how's your day going? Hey, thank you for doing that. It's not hard, right? Get in a taxi cab, say something nice. Wherever you are, at work, a little kindness goes a long way. I've been trying it. It's not easy, right? Because some people, they make you want to be unkind. But kindness goes a long way. Goodness. Here, let me help you with that. You don't have to say, in the name of Jesus, I want to help you with that. No, just do it. I had to stop myself from saying that. Because it's easy. It's easy to be criticized if we're jerks for Jesus. right? And it's easy to be that way. right? And sometimes we would say, I don't want to, I don't want to even, it's better if they don't know I'm a Christian, why I'm acting. But we can get right back on the right path. These are good words. These should encourage us. I can be kind. I can be good. Now here's one, faithfulness. Faithfulness. That's something that we do with each other. So I remember when my dad died, my mom, you know, she said, faithful husband. She wanted to promote the concept of faithfulness because that's what he was, he was a faithful man. Faithful to the Lord, faithful to his family. Faithful to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Faithfulness. We do what we say we're going to do. We put God's ways ahead of our ways. Gentleness. I got to work on this one too. Gentleness. I got to work on all of them, but gentleness stands out. Self-control. Man, we can flavor the world. So we got to know those things. I know you've heard those before. That's a whole great chapter here, you know. If you go back a little ways in this chapter, Galatians chapter 5, back to verse 13, it says, you, my brothers, were called to be free. You know the freest people on the planet? Us. We're free. Free from sin. Free from death. We have incredible freedom. We're not bound by rules and regs. We're not limited. We're not restricted. I used to work for a school district. My superintendent, I reported to the superintendent, and at the Christmas time, he went around giving presents to all of the administrators who reported to him and I noticed a guy next to me got a nice bottle of wine a guy out in the front got a nice bottle of wine and I got a paper clip holder you know why? because he knew I was a man of faith well he knew I was religious and so what do you think? he said oh a religious guy can't give him wine better give him a paper clip holder it's a nice paper clip holder I still have that paper clip holder I don't think the guys still have their wine but I don't know who enjoyed their gift more. But at least he knew that much of a difference in my life. He knew, he knew that I was religious. It says, we're, you were called to be free. We don't have those kinds of restrictions. But, in your, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. That's the natural inclination we joke with our daughter sometimes. Say, I want it and I want it now. Yes, it's all about me. You got it right. No, just kidding. But we were called to be free, but don't use the freedom to indulge in sinful nature. Rather what? Serve one another in love. How do you serve somebody? By seeing their needs as at least as important as our own. I'm not saying that as somebody who's good at it. I'm saying that as somebody who wants to be better at it. I learn to serve people. That's not that hard. Let's start with simple things. Let me hold that door for you. Let me volunteer for this. How can I help? Serve one another in love. The entire law. This is what it says next. The next verse. 
the entire law, which we're called to obey. When Rich gets to the next part of this next week, we're going to talk about now the smallest piece of the law is going to be gone until it's all fulfilled. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with it. Not one iota of it. But this says the entire law is summed up in a single command. What is it? You know what it is without even reading the verse. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how we're to flavor the world. Now, look what he says next. If you keep on biting and devouring one another, watch out. Or you'll be destroyed by each other. That's a command to us, the church. I'm not talking about us biting and devouring people out there. I'm talking about us biting and devouring people in here. It's easy to do that, isn't it? We all have traits that aren't that great. And don't do it over the pews. Right? If, you, if you really like the pews and they put chairs in here, just live with it. Right? Or vice versa. So we, but those little kinds of things, believe it or not, are sometimes the seeds that make people dislike each other so they can't say a nice thing about each other. And they bite and devour. And they, you know, suddenly you got a winning softball team now. Now, if you're somebody who didn't get into the game until you came in as a sub, well, don't, don't get all upset, right? And everybody else remember, because those little kinds of things that don't really matter can bite and devour each other. And then he says, watch out, you'll become unsalty. So to what does Jesus call us? We already said it. It's love. In fact, he summed it up. John chapter 13, verse 34 and verse 35. Jesus said, a new command I give you. What is it? You can, everybody can memorize this one. A new command I give you, love one another. Then he said this, as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. Now the next verse, incredible. You want to be salt? As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. Wow. That's it. That's what he wants. Yeah, ultimately, I can't say this yet. Maybe Pastor Rich can say it. Ultimately, we'll know we're salty salt. When we can say, as the Apostle Paul did in Philippians 4.9, he wasn't bragging. I think that he had just um, followed God with such dedication and sincerity that he could say this truthfully. In Philippians 4.9, he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and a God of peace will be with you. That's how I want to be. That's the goal. To do what Paul was able to do in following God with complete dedication. Now here's the thing. It's the tough thing. If you're good salt, if you do all that stuff, you say kind words to people, you serve people, you love your Christian brothers, sometimes you get stomped on. Sometimes you get persecuted. Sometimes you get mistreated. It doesn't say here that you're not going to be. It says you are going to be. It says still flavor the world. Flavor the world. See, that's what Jesus was talking about. We're not going to go into detail in it, but you just go down further in this chapter. Go to chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Eye for eye, eye, for eye tooth for tooth, yaman. That's right, especially when it's coming toward me. Now, Jesus said, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And he didn't say do not resist evil. He's talking about how we respond when somebody lashes out in a persecuting way. He says, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek. That's where that verse comes from. <laughs> Don't just respond the way you naturally feel like you should respond. Show love. So he said, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And you get down to verse 43, he says again, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yeah, man. That's right, right? Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He didn't say it's easy. 
He said, this is what I call you to. Radical change. Love your enemies. Now look what he says after that. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you go back to Joshua, Joshua is preparing to lead the people into the promised land. And the first city they're going to attack is Jericho, right? And so Joshua goes out and does what a normal military commander would do. He starts to scout out everything that he has to scout out, make sure everything's ready. And he comes in direct contact, confrontation with the commander general of the Lord's army in full battle gear, the angel of the Lord. And Joshua's first response is, are you for us or for our enemies? And what did the angel of the Lord say? He said, I'm for neither. See, God lets the sun rise on the good and the bad alike. Rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. God died for everybody. The guy that mistreats you, Jesus died for that person. The person who's dead wrong in a conflict with you, Jesus died for that person. All he says to us is this. Can you see that person the way I see that person? He doesn't ever say stand there and just keep getting beat up. But he says love your enemies. Love your enemies. That's part of being salt. He says if you don't, see if you just if we're kind to each other and we're kind back and forth. He said doesn't everybody do that? Even pagans do that. And that's just before he says that. Just before he says verse 48. Be perfect therefore as your father, as your heavenly father is perfect. It's not my command. That's God's command to those of us who profess to be his followers. Now let's talk about light for a moment. Seven more words. You are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. But wait. Do you know if you turn to John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says the very same thing about himself. He says, I am the light of the world. And then if you go to John chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What? He says of his followers the same thing he says of himself. Yes. Yes, he does. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a familiar passage. But at whatever level you're convicted this morning by these words of Scripture. Let these words of Scripture encourage you and motivate you and stimulate you. It says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That's a good start. That's what really it's saying. See people the way God sees them. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And then a very familiar verse to most of us, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now, we know that the start of our faith walk is that God reconciled us to himself. He saved us. He saved me. I owed the debt. He paid the price. Hallelujah. I'm free because he paid my penalty. It's like standing before the judge, and the judge doesn't say, eh, you know, I'm in a good mood today. You're excused. No, he says, you're guilty, and there's a penalty that must be paid. It must be paid. And Jesus steps forth and says, I paid his penalty, and now I can go free. Not because I was excused, but because he paid the penalty. He fully took God's wrath upon himself for me and for you. That's, so if we profess to believe, that's what, we've, that's what we're professing. And it says that right here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then look at this. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, go tell everybody else. The ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting men's sins against them because he counted them against Jesus. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now I would encourage you to underline this next verse in your Bible. Verse 20. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Wow. The dictionary definition of ambassador means authorized representative. He's entrusted to us the very ministry of reconciliation. God knew what he was doing when, he, when Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended back to heaven. And he said, it's your turn now. Go do it. Tell the whole world. God's making his appeal through us. He says to us that we should go out. We implore you, he writes here, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God doesn't take it lightly. He said, you guys are going to do the work now. In fact, another very familiar passage of Scripture, we'll come to a close here soon, it's in Matthew chapter 28. Sometimes it helps to rehear familiar words in the context of what God commands us to do. Matthew 28, he appears to his disciples, Jesus now in his glorified body. The victory's been won. And he says to them, and they're confident now, they're growing in confidence, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you guys, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. See, if, if, if we do this, if we obey this, we'll face opposition. We'll face difficulty. We'll face persecution. But the wonderful thing, not only has God entrusted us. Do you want to know if you are somebody in Christ? You are somebody. You're somebody that God is counting on. He's entrusting you with his very ministry of reconciliation. And not only does he say you are somebody, he says, I'm with you. My Holy Spirit's with you, and I'm with you. When Jim prayed this morning, he said, we thank you for being present with us. That's what scripture says. When we gather together in his name, he's here. Do we believe that? See, the same word that says love your enemies, the same word later through the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's his command. We will face opposition, but we are to see people the way God sees people. Not when it's easy or convenient but all the time. And the last verse of this little section of the Sermon on the Mount that we've been reading, Matthew chapter 5, and it says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Don't try to hide it. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. God says, Go with confidence. See verse 16? In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. If we see people the way God sees them, and we get in Scripture, and we get soaked and saturated in that, we see, let's start with the little things. I'll be kind to the person at the check register today. I'll say something nice to anybody God has my path crossed with today. I'll sincerely be interested in the needs of somebody else today. When we start to do that, we start to flavor oil. Why? To please Jesus. Not to get points but to cooperate with what he's doing, to be the extension of what he wants done, to be his arms and legs and voices of ministry. That's what he says he's called us to, to represent him. We may be the only Jesus anyone sees, or we may be what they see of Jesus. Don't be afraid to do that. God is with you. That's what God's called you to. He'll help you. Ask for wisdom, he'll give it to you. James 1.5. If you lack wisdom, ask of God, he'll give it to you. He gives liberally. Try it. If you haven't done it, ask. It says ask and believe. Give me wisdom, God. Ask for strength. He'll supply all the strength you need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Later in the same chapter, my God will supply all your need according to his glorious riches 
God's arm is not too short. We're called to be salt. We're called to flavor the world with God's grace, with God's love, and with God's goodness. We're called to be light, to fill the world with the revelation of God's atoning love, his ministry of reconciliation. We're called to show Jesus to the world by our lives. We're called to be like Jesus. We can do it because God is with us. We can't do it on our own strength. We can do it because God is with us. When we come into the salt shaker, and when we get up in the morning and have our devotions, see, we get in the Word. Why do, why does, why do, and, and Pastor Rich said it today. So we want to hold fast to the Word. Be in the Word. Why be in the Word? Not to get points. Be in the Word so we know what God's ways are. Be in the Word so we get filled up with the knowledge of God. So we know what the fruit of the Spirit is. So we know what He wants us to do. We can do it because he's with us. Be in, be in the word and be in prayer. Individually and together, be in prayer. Somebody was asking me last week, one of the fans at the ballpark kind of razzing me a little bit um, about prayer. But you know what? I just said, I don't know how it works. I do know that God knows what we need before we ask him, but yet he wants us to ask. He wants us to be in communication with him. He wants to speak to us. And I can guarantee you, if you haven't had the experience of hearing God speak to you, get in prayer really sincerely, and be quiet before God and pray over Scripture, and God will speak to you. And you'll know it's God. And you'll know what to do. Go in confidence, in the confidence God that God loves you and that in Him you are somebody. You're loved by God Almighty. How great is that? The God who spoke and created the universe loves you and loves me. And I want to leave you with one Scripture. My father used to close many messages with this encouragement. Doxology from Hebrews chapter 13. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you.